The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, welcome to Spirit Matters. Uh, If you're wondering where my co-host, Dennis Ramundi, is... (laughs) That's the old version of Spirit Matters, and uh, the archive of that show lives on, and you can go to spiritmatterstalk.com or the YouTube channel to the same name, and you're welcome to listen to our archive of about 300 interviews. This is the new version on mindbodyspirit.fm, and uh, we continue the tradition of conversations with a diverse range of wise people who can help you along your own spiritual path. And I'm very happy to have with us today a wise person whose work I admire and who I consider a friend, Mirabai Starr. Mirabai is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and, excuse me, contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy in the world religion and world religions at the University of Mexico for 20 years and for the recent decades has been speaking and teaching globally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. I first became aware of Mirabai because of her books on some of the uh, preeminent Christian mystics, John of the Cross, Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, as well as a wonderful book called Wild Mercy, which is about women mystics from all traditions. I want to ask her about all that and other matters, especially her work on bereavement and grief. Welcome, Mirabai. Thank you, Phil. So good to be with you again across the years and the miles. Yes, time and space is uh, being eradicated more and more, but they still exist. (laughs) Still exist. Um, For those who are not familiar with your your books, Mirabai, especially the earlier ones. What got you interested in the Christian mystics of the hundreds of years ago? How did you even become aware of them, given your uh, upbringing and your background? <laughs> What's the origin story there? I completely stumbled into this um, dharma, this vocation of being a translator and reflector on the teachings of the Christian mystics. Um, So as you alluded to, I grew up in the counterculture of the 1970s, born in New York, but my family uh, migrated in in a hippie caravan to New Mexico when I was 11. Actually, we spent a almost a year on the road, most of which was in Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula before it was developed, and ended up in Taos, New Mexico, because of the proximity 
actually to the Lama Foundation where Ramdas created Be Here Now with the Lama community and the school, the, the alternative school that was here in Taos. I'm still in Taos, raised my own family here, uh, which was a really wonderful kind of hub, this school for all the, the teachers and teachings that came through New Mexico at the time. It was a it was definitely a crossroads for a lot of spiritual traditions and um, and artists, you know, it was a place for artists. There's something about the light here that's very magical, as yeah. you know. The legacy of Georgia O'Keeffe. That's right. And Ansel Adams and so many others. And and yes, you visited us here. You know how, how magical this place is. So there's some kind of vortex here that draws, draws people um, who are yearning for that soul, that life of the soul. So my family was here and um, my parents were both Jewish, New York Jews, who rejected, completely rejected Judaism. I mean, they couldn't help but identify culturally uh, as Jews, particularly the part of Judaism's heritage that is committed to justice, to social justice. And they were very involved in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and all of that, but really allergic to religion. But because Taos was such a place where the different spiritual traditions um, were celebrated and so many great teachers came through, we were all influenced. And I, as a young teenager, was especially influenced by every spiritual tradition except Christianity. You know, as non-religious Jews, my family was like, <laughs> Christianity was not safe. Um, so when I was in college, and I'll, I'll end this story so I don't go on and on. Um, in college, I did a semester abroad in my junior year, and I went to Spain to study Spanish literature. And I, um, like, yeah, it was I was in Sevilla, Seville, the, which was just like the heart. The Andalusia is just like the living yeah. heart. It's the <clears throat> I have great memories of being there. Even though when I was there, Franco was still in power. Oh, my God. I was there right after. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so Granada, Sevilla and Granada, that whole area is just so alive. And, um, yeah, I lived with a family that had been, the father had worked for Franco. He was a general, actually, in uh -huh. Franco's army. Wow. And, uh, or a colonel or something. I don't know. I don't know my military uh, structure. But... It was, yeah, it was definitely the sort of shabby post-Franco world, but I loved that family and I loved living there. And I, so I became fluent in Spanish, studied Spanish poetry and encountered San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, and read his poetry in Spanish and fell in love with him. And part of the attraction was that he reminded me so much of Rumi. At that uh -huh. point, I was 20, I had already, been practicing Sufism, uh, multiple branches of Sufism, but uh. especially the Mevlevi path of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. And so I recognized Rumi, Rumi's passion, Rumi's very specific imagery and metaphors of fire and gardens and wine and intoxication and the language of the beloved. So that's what drew me and, and John of the Cross wouldn't let me go. Wow. And that was the beginning. So that was the beginning, but then, you know, it took me, so I was 20, it took me well into my 30s to decide to translate Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross, which it was not only my favorite mystical writing, and so of course I studied the mystics very deeply after that, I went to graduate school in philosophy and religious studies and um, really dove deeply into the mystics of multiple traditions. But John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul is the treatise on the maturing of the, of the practitioner, of the seeker uh, along the path of awakening. And it's quintessential, it's beautiful. I loved it and I kept trying to teach it. So I became a professor of, of religious studies. and. I would teach Dark Night of the Soul in translation, these kind of old stuffy Catholic translations. And my students were just bored to death. And finally a <laughs> colleague just in the English department suggested that I try 
uh, translating. It's like me, you know, I'm not a translator, but I was fluent in Spanish. I love language. I was a frustrated novelist. I was constantly trying to write the great American novel. Um, I love literary fiction. Like that's what feeds me. That's what I read for fun. And, um, you know, I wrote short stories and poetry, but somehow I combined my love of this, of this text with my, my, um, almost worship of language, you know, beautiful language is important to me. The writerly aspects of my work are as important to me as the philosophical, mm. if not more so, and the music of language. And then, you know, so fluency in Spanish, love of the text and, um, and love of, of beautiful language it, in, inspired me to do this translation. And that opened up um, a huge gate in my life. Let's talk about that a moment. The, the, the phrase dark night of the soul is, is part of our vocabulary now, and people use it in a lot of different ways. It's, it's like, you know, anytime anybody's depressed, it's a dark night of the soul. And in, even in spiritual circles, it's just used as a, you know, to, as a catch off a, a phrase to, to sort of capture uh, a, a a depressed period of one's life or something, but it, it's, it, it's much richer and deeper than that. Can you tell us if, what to you, what to John of the cross, dark night of the soul really meant? Mm, yeah, it's what he meant was a process of dismantling all of our false constructs, all of our ideas about God, much like Meister Eckhart, the great German uh, mystic who who was very interested in stripping away all of our all of the ways that we package up the great mystery. And you know, Cloud of Unknowing is another medieval mystical text that is up to the same kind of deconstruction uh, process. But in for John of the Cross, it's not something we do. We don't set about like Descartes trying to dismantle all of our ideas to come up with some kind of ground level truth. It's something that happens to us and it's grace, he says. You can't engineer it. And it starts often with a sense of your spiritual life drying up, that all the juicy kind of feelings of connectedness to the divine that come often through the means of certain spiritual practices, like your beautiful book about um, about spiritual practices, forgive me, Phil, it is called the last, that last one about the, the hand spiritual hand. practice for crazy times, spiritual practice for crazy times, that all of these rich technologies that we that we have that open our hearts and, and our consciousness and connect us with the felt presence of the divine all of those sort of reliable means uh, stop working and we enter into a period of sensory aridity, he calls it. It's like mm. a desert kind of space. And if we stay with it and don't turn away, if we can trust that dryness and, and darkness that descends on our souls and stay, just do the practices anyway, stay on the path, in spite of the fact that we're not getting any of the, the juicy goodies, he calls them consolations, then we may enter into the deeper dark night, which is when all of our ideas about God start to fall away also. So not just the sensory connection, he calls it the night of sense, but the conceptual constructs, structs, which he calls the night of spirit, which mm. is a very advanced spiritual state, he says, when all of that falls away and we can know nothing. So for John of the Cross, it's like that stripping action makes us spiritually naked. And when we are naked, we can have a direct intimate encounter with the beloved. You know, they use, the Spanish mystics often use that same language as the Sufis. Now we can talk about it later. We can talk about it now, but I, have discovered that the connection between a true dark night of the soul as a as a sign of spiritual maturity and external circumstances depression and grief can be 
totally interconnected. John said mm -hmm. that they that the what a dark night state is invisible on the outside, has nothing to do with external circumstances. Oh. He didn't exactly say nothing to do with external circumstances, but he's talking about a very private inner reality. Um, I'm very interested in the way our lives present us with difficulties that in fact can open into a true transformational spiritual experience that we might call a dark night of the soul. I do want to talk about that, but while we're on the subject of John, excuse me, if I may call him just John. Um, <laughs> or Juanito, I call him Juanito. Juanito. Um, that led you to the women mystics, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich. Um, we think of the Christian mystics, and um, there are male versions, John and Meister Eckhart. There are female versions, like the ones I just mentioned. How are they different? Mm. Or are they different? Yeah, right. Uh, they are. <laughs> they <laughs> definitely are different. Um, okay, so maybe we should get the gender question out of the way right now. I just want to say that when I speak about the feminine, the way of the feminine versus the masculine, I am speaking more in that um, archetypal sense of certain <laughs> qualities and attributes that are often identified with the masculine uh, and others with the feminine, but I'm speaking about and I'm speaking to people of all genders. All genders are included in this exploration. Okay, so um, the so after I after I translated Dark Night of the Soul, I was asked by my publisher to translate Teresa Vavila, The Interior Castle. Because the frankly, because the publisher felt like she was much more known and popular in the, mm. in the culture at large, I was kind of the first person to come along in many years to translate the Christian mystics. A lot of Buddhist, Sufi, and Hindu mystical teachings had were being translated at the time. Especially, this was in the in the late '90s, especially the Sufi mystics. But um, Christian mystics, probably for all the same reasons, my parents rejected the monotheistic religions. Were not not being really explored. So in order to to be successful <laughs> in this realm of translating the, the Christian mystics, they felt like Teresa of Avila would be much more saleable, frankly. So I agreed to that, uh, even though I wasn't interested in her. I had studied her, but I found her kind of um, off-putting. She was, you know, John was like this deep contemplative, and Teresa was this um, drama queen, very, very zealous, very, uh, a lot of God language. John of the Cross used much more metaphorical language of lover and beloved with their secret rendezvous in the garden. But Teresa was all about Jesus. There were various reasons I, I re um, recoiled a bit from her, but I did agree to do it. And I knew it would, it would be an interesting project. But right when I agreed to do, to translate the interior castle, and Dark Night of the Soul was finished and it was about to come out, my 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident, as you well know, Phil. And that, um, that was the explosion that shattered my, my entire life. I didn't know how to take the next breath, let alone do the next project. I contemplated, um, not doing the interior castle, although I had signed a contract, my publisher understood. We we discerned together whether or not I should go forward. And I decided that I would do a ritual year of mourning in the Jewish tradition. I'd go back to my ancestral roots to try to find a container to hold this impossible experience. And because I was turning inward for a year, withdrawing from the world, I it was the perfect thing to translate the interior castle because I could just be home at my desk with my candle and my dictionary and, and just be. And Teresa became my guide and my companion and my guru uh, for that 
that year that I was translating the interior castle and grieving my daughter. Now, what is it about the women mystics? What is it about Teresa that makes her different than John, my, my best friend, John of the Cross? The women mystics that I know of, that I've translated and that I also am immersed in because it's not only Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bingen, Teresa of Avila, it's also Mirabai, my namesake from India, and Rabia from, um, from the Middle East and other women mystics from different traditions. They are embodied. Their language is grounded in the experience of being human. The male mystics are much more, as in my experience, about transcending our humanity and a attaining these states of union with God in which the separate self completely dissolves like a drop of water into a boundless ocean of love. It is, it is characterized by love, of course, but it's disembodied in some sense. The body is seen and the human experience, our emotions, our desires, all of this is seen as an impediment or an obstacle to awakening in all the spiritual traditions. But the women mystics are squarely rooted in the human condition, in, in bodies and blood, in, in babies and feeding, in the earth herself. We are rooted in the earth. And so the women mystics all speak about, evoke, and are really devoted to uplifting our experience of being human but not transcending it it's imminent versus transcendent i would say <clears throat> excuse me so and that is true of uh the uh the christian mystics or women mystics of other traditions who are also monastics yes so clara of assisi is a good example um Yes, because it, I can see the point of your question and perhaps less so with certain monastic and, and deeply contemplative women, but for the most part, the metaphors they use all have to do with the human experience, with relationship. Now, I, I think Teresa is a good example. So she was a monastic, she was a, a cloistered Carmelite nun, and her vision of the soul as a castle, this is where the, the term interior castle comes from, was a vision she had of the soul as this beautiful, pure crystal palace. So beautiful and so pure that there's nowhere else that the Holy One would choose to dwell than in the center of that castle. And the Holy One is beckoning us inward to have union, in the, to, to make love with the beloved on the the bridal bower at the center of this castle and calling us with beautiful music and, and the light, the light gets brighter the, the closer you get to the center. So Teresa's all about, uh, and all the, the mystics really are about paradox, but the women mystics are very happy to just um, con contra logically contradict themselves at every turn, whereas the masculine, the male mystics are much more about trying to prove the logic. Uh, uh. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so the light gets brighter, the closer you get to the center, the music gets more beautiful and, and more intense. And the love notes from the beloved become much more passionate, that are beckoning, beckoning, beckoning us. So it's a round, she, she often uses imagery that's round, like they're, this castle is round, the rooms are round. The, and the journey is is a kind of circular trajectory to the center. It's not linear, and it's a womb-like space. The term in, Sp in Spanish for the, the rooms or the dwellings, I, I um, translated as dwellings, of the interior castle, the word in Spanish is morada. And morada is, has its roots in Islam. This comes from the, the Moors in Spain who were, you know, there for 700 years. In fact, Spain under more, under Islamic rule, um, 
was the meeting place for mystical Judaism, Christianity, and Islam for many centuries. But it was it was under Islamic rule that this incredible tolerance and interconnection happened. So a lot of um, a lot of the influence of of Islam was woven in to Christianity, Spanish, especially in Spanish Christianity, Catholicism. So the Moradas are these here in New Mexico because a lot of the Spaniards, probably Jews, probably conversos who were escaping the Inquisition, came to the so-called New World. And all over here in New Mexico, we have Moradas. And Moradas are these adobe um, chapels, kind of. They're hidden. They're not they're not used by the public. They're only used by a small brotherhood of hermanos penitentes that have a, have special rights around the passion of Christ. And they're, they're roundish, mud, low, uh, windowless spaces where deep practices are done around wow. the passion of Christ. So these, yeah, this is a, the kind of womb-like space that Teresa was invoking. So you think crystal, you think light, but also it was dark and um, and round and womb-like. These are the spaces where transformation happens in the darkness. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Your um, explanation, <clears throat> excuse me, of the difference between the male and female mystics reminds me given my orientation of uh, Shiva and Shakti and um, another sort of illustration of something you know very much about uh, the commonalities uh, among the traditions when you uh, look at the mystical branches of them is that why you wrote uh, Wild Mercy, I should mention, Wild Mercy and the subtitle, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. Yes, it was, um, it was time to explore my beloveds from the other traditions, because I had been <laughs> steeped in these other traditions all along, particularly in Hinduism. Um, through my, my connection to my guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who has been my guru since I was 14 years old. Did you and ever, you didn't meet him though, did you? I no. didn't, yeah. but I did get to meet his successor, his quiet, mm. gentle successor, uh, Sri Sidima, who um, died recently, but who really took over Maharaji's ashrams in India, particularly the, the one in the, the foothills of the Himalayas where all the Westerners kind of came, Ramdas yeah. and everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so City Ma was, was very dear to me and very strong influence on my life still. Uh, but yeah, the Sufi mystics, all, all of the traditions that I, uh, Tibetan Buddhism that I had been steeped in uh, and hadn't gotten to write about, I finally celebrated in this, this big fiesta of wild, wild mercy, which is drawing on women mystics from all the spiritual traditions, but also goddesses and other archetypal wisdom beings. And, and it's really about reclaiming the path of feminine wisdom for all of us, for yeah, men yeah. and women and people of all genders. Um, you know, what's interesting about this is <clears throat> when, uh, like your parents, you know, I was exploring all the, the different traditions and it came as a shock to me to discover the Christian mystics at one point. Um, we were studying Zen and we were going off to India and we were doing all these uh, discoveries. Um, and Jewish mystics were off the radar for me because mm -hmm. I was raised very much like you. And... Um, 
Christian mystics came as a big surprise at one point. And when you were first doing the translations, um, there were people like Father Thomas Keating around, but now the awareness of the uh, contemplative Christian tradition and the, the Christian mystics is so much greater. Uh, and of course you contributed to that, but it's kind of interesting. And I think part of it is because uh, the, the mainstream Christians uh, didn't want anything to do with the Christian mystics. They still don't. <laughs> Nevertheless, you're finding an eager audience, I'm sure, for your your work in uh, in Christian circles now that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Am yeah, I correct in that? You are, are absolutely correct. I thought I was going to piss off the Christians, you know, because I, I do take liberties. I Okay, let me just say, I'm a very faithful translator. Um, I am, not, it is not interpreted interpreted it's not like daniel adinsky with the so-called uh, translations of hafiz or even coleman barks with rumi you know both of whom are beautiful poets themselves daniel yeah. adinsky and coleman barks and and they infuse their interpretations of these great mystics yeah. and their, take liberties yes with their own literary sensibilities i do bring my literary sensibilities to my translations of course but i'm very faithful to the original However, I have attempted in all my translations of the Christian mystics to make them accessible to everyone, not just Christians. I'm not Christian. Right. And so who are my people? You like I think about my Jewish mother, my Jewish mother who won't call herself Jewish. And how can I make <laughs> Julian of Norwich sing to my mother's heart? And I have. In fact, my translation of Julian of Norwich showings, the revelations of divine love makes my mother cry. So it's like, okay, bingo, I got it. I can, cause my mother's uh -huh. you know, not even not identified with the monotheistic religion, no religion. So, so yes, however, um, Christians, particularly Catholics have really resonated with my work um, but particularly progress, progressive and contemplative Christians. There's a, a very strong emerging movement. And yes, Thomas yeah. Keating, Father Thomas, our beloved friend who, who I love to, who's a great mentor of mine. Um, that kind of tradition that blends contemplative life in Christianity with, with compassionate action in the world those are those are the people that are finding this work that I'm doing relevant. And it's um, startling how many more of them there are now than there there once were. Yes, there's um, a real emerging of contemplative consciousness in the culture. No question. Um, another of your books, uh, it's a beautiful book, uh, Caravan of of No Despair. Uh, a memoir of loss and transformation was about the loss of your daughter and, and its effect on you. Um, <clears throat> and I want to talk about that. You, you're a certified bereavement counselor in addition to everything else you do. Um, and you talk about harnessing what, how you put it is harnessing the transformational power of loss. Um, I've talked to other people about this sort of alchemy of grief and, and how it could be transmuted into. And I think of my own past because people often ask me how I, you know, this who was, you know, it, following in the footsteps of his atheist Jewish parents, then suddenly got launched on a spiritual path in the late 60s. And there are a lot of reasons for it, a lot of cultural reasons, of course. But part of it was I lost my mother. Mm. At, you know, I was 21. She was not yet 48. And this was, you know, the biggest loss of my life and, and remained so. Um, and I'm, in looking back, I can think of, you know, what I went through at that time somehow led me 
into this spiritual exploration. I'm sure it works different ways for different people, but let's talk about that. Um, what do you, how do you work with people? What do you say to people who are suffering a deep loss and, um, are, are mired in, in profound grief, uh, about the transformational possibilities of being in that kind of state? Well, what I don't say is, guess what? This in unbearable anguish that you're in is an opening to spiritual transformation. So just hang in there and, and you'll get to God. This is what I do not say. Um, I never try to shape anyone else's experience of grief in any way. What I am here to do is to bear loving witness to the person who's grieving in whatever, wherever they are. And people know that that is my thing, that, that I am dedicated to because like you Phil it just it just happened for me through by virtue of my losses this one in particular I mean, Jenny's loss was not the my daughter it was not my only great loss in this life but it was by far the most the most powerful um but people know that I'm interested in and dedicated to this intersection of grief and spiritual experience and so my work with people is to embrace grief as a spiritual path. Like as long as we're here, we, we didn't choose this, we never choose it for anyone. But as long as we're here, can we show up for the full catastrophe as Orbe the Greek called it in Cousin Saki's novel? Can we be present for what is, whatever is arising? with gentleness, with tenderness, with and in community. I'm really interested in how when we come together with other people on a spiritual path to be present for our grief in a loving and conscious way, uh, what happens? And so I'm working with people now more than ever before uh, in, commun in community, grieving together and entering into grief as prayer, grief as spiritual practice, grief as a transformation of love through love into love. Now, you have probably experienced as I have that um, it's at times of loss, especially um, losses that that come as a shock, losses that are, are out of the natural order of things. Like, I, you know, both my parents are gone, but one died at 85 and one at 47. And that, there's a big difference. One is tragic, one's in the natural course of events. Your loss of your daughter is, you know, an unimaginable thing, you know, for a parent to go through. Often when people go through that, they become very cynical. They become very angry. At, if they were religious, it's the time when they might no longer be religious because they're angry at God. And they, it doesn't, you know, the universe just seems so unjust and unfair. How could, you know, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you, that seems to be a natural reaction. And yet, even that is possibly an opening. How does that work? Exactly. Even that is an opening. I call it outrage. Hmm. It's one of, I, I have identified or distilled 12, um, what I call thresholds in the landscape of loss that are universal kinds of, of moments on in the grief process that almost everybody will touch down on one or all 12 of these of these spaces uh, along their journey of grieving and outrage is one of one of the openings it's a threshold that we cross into a deeper and greater love and so i don't 
see that bitterness, that doubt of the existence of God, the anger at God or the anger at the person who who's died or the person who's left us if it's a breakup, because the breakup of a love relationship is one of, as you all know, mm -hmm. the, the most painful losses that anyone can go through. I mean, I say that as a bereaved mother, I know how excruciating the ending of a relationship is, even sometimes when we are the ones who've chosen it. Mm -hmm. Always just because we're the ones who've been left. So, um, so outrage, doubt, uh, all of these things, yes, I see them as thresholds into a deeper connection with what's real and and what's real is love. And now that last thing you said is terribly important to me because um, I was about to ask, how does that alchemy happen from outrage into a a connection with the divine into a, a rejection from a rejection to an embrace of the divine. Um, you as a counselor, you as a teacher can help people along that way. I assume for people listening who are in maybe going through that kind of phase, what would, what would you say to them? Well, just coming back again, Phil, to what I said at the beginning of this part of the conversation, I don't try to correct or direct their experience. Right. I am, I am a witness. I can reflect it back to them. Like, yeah, I really see that God is a bastard in your view right now, a son of a bitch who you just want to, you know, slap down. I, like, I don't. I don't deny or try to color or, uh, um, you know, put a, a pretty spin on it. it. But, you know, it's true that the people who come to me, and I don't do individual counseling anymore, but the people who come to my community spaces are already inclined mm. to explore the spiritual possibilities in the midst of their deepest, darkest grief experiences, because they've already detected what I call the fragrance of the sacred mm. in the fire of their grief. They don't need me to suggest it because somehow, paradoxically and inexplicably, mysteriously and wonderfully and terribly have sensed the presence of the divine, not despite, but at the center of their greatest sorrow and loss. Does it often entail a kind of reframing or redefining their conception of spirit or their conception of God? Yeah, that's why the Dark Night of the Soul teachings have come in so handy for me <laughs> over the years. It's it's what helped me. Nothing really helped me. I was inconsolable when my daughter died. And yet I must admit that two things probably did help me survive and in fact enter in, you know, through that sacred gate. Um, one was many years of contemplative practice, which just the only thing that was useful about that was that I had sat enough hours with not knowingness <laughs> that yeah. uh, learned to not believe everything I think, that I was able to be in a, in a naked space of radical unknowing. And the other was, yes, my intimacy with John of the Cross and the teachings of the Dark Knight of the Soul um, that stripping down, you know, because grief is such a powerful stripping agent, you know, it just melts every all of our constructs. And, and so I, I saw, I experienced that when all my preconceptions dissolved in that great meltdown of grief, I was landed in a, a space that the mystics that I had loved and studied and explored and practiced with over all these years were, were evoking 
all mm. what the poets, the mystic poets really were all talking about. There was a way in which I was being invited into that naked spiritual state that the mystics celebrate. I didn't want to be there, or at least I didn't want to go there that way, but I did recognize there was something about this that was invitational spiritually and, and alchemical, as you say, and also that it wasn't about um, getting good at my spiritual practice. It was about love. It was mm. about making of my experience an offering, not trying to prove anything. Speaking of offerings, tell us about your program that you call Holy Lament. Um, it's a communal um, format online, I assume. Right. Tell yeah. us about it. Oh, thank you, Phil. And oh, by the way, when you, you mentioned um, Caravan of No Despair, which is of all my dozen or more books is my favorite. Hmm. I just did the, I just recorded the audio. Oh, so nice. Out any day now. And um, so that How was. How will people find it? Sound, it? Is it? Through my website, ah, um, com. So the whole Holy Lament is a, is a community that my partner Willow and I have created online, as you say. And it's a, it's a gathering of people who are interested in exploring grief as a spiritual path. And we, we work through or, or dance through these 12 thresholds that I, um, that I mentioned that are kind of universal features in the landscape of loss, the, each one opening us more deeply into a, a direct experience of, of the sacred in community. And there's something about the way that we gather around this that is filling people with something closely resembling joy, <laughs> even mm. when they're in the midst of their deepest grief. Mm. Mm. So it's a very powerful, potent, beautiful gathering of humans uh, of all ages and ethnicities and spiritual orientations. Who are and um, are there beginnings and ends of the program or is it just an ongoing? It's an ongoing flow, although there are um, uh, gates that open three times a year. So the, the, to bring in another, another um, influx of companions. So the next one is, is very soon, it's in July. And the one after that will be in December. So uh, listeners, we're recording this in mid-May. Um, it will be online sometime in June, and you could there and uh, sign up. This is the year 2023 for those of you listening to the archive in the future. <laughs> and uh, you can do that through uh, Mirabai's website, Mirabai Star, 2Rs.com. And people who join you for the first time will be uh, blended in with people continuing from the past. Yes. yes. And yes. how does it? How do you do this online? I mean, do people share? Do you have? Yeah, structure Willow, it. Willow has created a a beautiful. She's an artist, and so it's extremely beautiful. This be beautiful online space. So there. Are, there are different places where you can um, connect with community online. We have one live uh, Q&R with me uh, each month. So it's just all about dialogue. There's another uh, time each month where, where people get together in small groups oh. and often read to each other the, the writing prompts. My, um, you know, as a writer and a teacher of writing also, Right, writing your story of loss and transformation is a beautiful aspect of this community. Um, I, I do a video offering every week and an email offering once a month, and then lots of opportunity to gather in community. Do people ever have the opportunity to meet in person? We are going to have a big gathering in uh, our first one actually is coming up in September. The first week in September will be our first wild heart gathering, we're calling where? it. 
Where? In New Mexico, outside of Santa Fe. Nice. Magical New Mexico. And um and also the the monthly experience includes a guest. So I have some very well-known uh, spiritual teachers who emphasize the transformational power of grief and loss who join us. So once a month, we have a, a beautiful guest present. And it's open to anybody? Do, do you, uh, I, I assume people are participating in it who have had losses of all kinds. All kinds, not just the death of a loved one. Um, and when I, we say it's open to everybody, we do a very, um, a very robust intake, uh, an interview online, so that if someone is in fresh trauma, they may or may not be appropriate for this uh -huh. gathering. I often say that my approach is more, um, it's it's more contemplative than cathartic. So if you're looking for a kind of powerful catharsis, this is not the space. This is a much quieter, gentler, um, meditative. I mean, it, it's much more than meditative. It's very embodied. We also do some, some um, body practices. Chanting, Willow is an incredible chanter across the spiritual tradition. So there are lots of engaged and embodied practices, but it's if you're feeling like you are on the verge of checking yourself into a hospital this is not the space for you you need to get outside support psychological support in fact we encourage anyone who's doing our holy lament journey to also have therapy or outside psychological support i'm uh i would guess that you encounter a lot of people who say why can't i get past this it's been five years it's been 15 mm -hmm. years it's been 40 years. Yeah. Why can't I get over this sense of loss and grief? What's wrong with me? Do you run into that? All the time. So what we also do three times a year is a four day, one hour a day, free um, offering called Unraveling the Myths of Grief. So for four days around lunchtime in, in the Northern, you know, in the US, um, it's different times around the world, and we have people from all over the world. We do um, an offering where we take one of these myths, like I should be over it by now, and we very gently and lovingly dismantle it and affirm that wherever you are is the holy ground. And this is deeply consoling to people to understand that they're not crazy and they're not doing it wrong. There is no right way to do it. There is no wrong way to do grief. There is only what is arising for you. And that is the true thing. And that is the holy thing. Yeah. So for those of you who don't want to join, the membership community is very inexpensive. But if you want to not pay any money, that four-day offering, Unraveling the Myths of Grief, is a really beautiful little gift that we try to give people to to help them not feel so alone and crazy on the grief path. That's great. Uh, I, I can, I remember having those thoughts. Um, I remember when I turned the age, my mother never reached. Mm. And I realized, you know, how young she really was and how uh, tragic it was. I kept, I got deeply sad and I said, you know, it's been almost 30 years. Why am I feeling this way? This is terrible. Yeah. And someone said to me, it's just love. And, you know, of course, you're not going to let go of those feelings because it's love. Yes. That was totally mind boggling to me. And it, it, it changed a lot. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> that's a Beautiful example of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, in the time we have left, I want to shift gears precipitously, perhaps. But you said something earlier when you said um, how much uh, you love literature and how important reading uh, fiction is, is for you. Um, it is for me as well. And writing it is you know, a, a whole nother level of uh, connection to, to words. Um, 
what how do you experience the spiritual dimension of reading good literature mm, who a- are the authors that most speak to you on a you know deep level mm. um by the way i am not someone who can do that like bring up authors names on the spot i don't know my brain always freezes when people ask me questions like that especially if they ask you which is your favorite right yeah i will say that i am reading barbara king solver's um demon copperhead right now which just run the pulitzer uh for fiction because i've always loved her i've read all her her novels and i'm so thrilled that she won this great literary prize and it is in fact just as good as they say um for me beauty is the opening to the divine it always has been you know i grew up in a family of artists and writers um who as we've already established did not subscribe to a belief in a personified deity but definitely were deeply rooted in in the soul the life of the soul and it was through the arts music writing, poetry, um, reading, and um, visual arts, painting, sculpture, and even gardening for my mother. Mm. So beauty has always been for me the transformational space where I see, or a glimpse at least, the face of the divine Mm. and continues to be. Dry theology does absolutely nothing for me. Even in the exploration of science, even mathematics, when <laughs> rooted in the aesthetic aspects, uh, it, it expand my heart, explode my heart, and connect me. But so I'm not. I'm not discounting things like history and and mathematics and the sciences. But if it's dry and dense and um informational i'm not interested it's it's the beauty of ideas that bring me home and the beauty of the writing of language oh music yeah for me good literature is musical and it's visual and you know when when i talk about uh spirituality and the arts and i've talked courses in it and all that um people usually want to talk about the the writers similar with music, but uh, that are explicitly spiritual, that are dealing with explicitly, right. you know, air quotes, spiritual subject matter. So people like Herman Hesse come up and, yeah. and no- novels like The Razor's Edge, uh, Somerset Moms, which, I, you know, I, I write about and talk about and had big influence on me. But um, I also find that um, writers who just write about life, <laughs> if it's well done, evoke something spiritual in me. Oh, yes, I've yes. often I often say, you know, there's there's explicitly spiritual music, you know, hymns and kirtan and all that. But if I'm in a certain mood, listening to Billie Holiday <laughs> evokes a, a mystical experience in me because just the sheer depth and beauty of it. Do you find that also in literature? I do. Absolutely. You are singing my song. (laughs) It's in fact, often explicitly um, spiritual novels bore the shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah. I just find them pretentious and tedious and, you know, don't tell me about it. Tell me about making love with your boyfriend just before he died you know that's what i want to know i'm actually writing a a new book called ordinary mysticism your life as holy ground that is precisely about all of these i have a whole chapter on um i call it at the feet of the masters and it's about reading good literature and listening to music and um and experiencing art both taking it in and making it and, it, and it's all about how non-religious expressions of the sacred are what I'm interested in. Excellent. Um, we have to go. 
listeners. No. <laughs> Don't go. <laughs> well, you can then uh, transform the loss of this conversation into. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Tell your friends about Spirit Matters. Email me with suggestions. Read my books, read Mirabai's books, read any books. Check out my website, subscribe to my mailing list. Mirabai, it's always a joy to speak with you. We should do it more often. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, Phil. And thank you all for, for listening. I know it's not that easy to explore grief as a, as a path. <laughs> thank you. See you next time. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.